0: Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Curtis Hendrick. Over the last couple of months, I've tried to be really intentional about providing a handful of episodes for those of you who are looking for a new role within our industry. It's a very unique industry. It's niche, so there's definitely nuances and differences in our space, but I think that also because a lot of us think similarly, we go through a lot of the same stages when we are feeling like maybe we're not making an impact right now because we're in between roles or there was a layoff or you maybe weren't laid off. Other people in your company were so you're feeling the burden of all the extra work with probably not any extra pay. I've been there or you're looking for upward mobility and maybe your current role doesn't provide that or so many other situations that are leading to, and I know I've said this before, but I've never seen or heard of or had so many people within this industry be looking for a job all at once. The good thing is they're are several opportunities. There certainly are more opportunities than there were even five or 10 years ago in this space, and there continue to be more. And while there are some companies that in the tech space that are unfortunately having layoffs, there are others that are growing. And so there's still opportunity, but it does mean that there's challenges because there's more competition than ever and it can take a long, sometimes the hiring process can take a while and so it can be discouraging. And I continue to hear from so many of you that say that those have been really helpful. And when a friend of mine reached out who has been wanting to share their story about the lowest time in their career and how it got so much better, I was like, okay, you know what? We can add at least one word. These. and i think that you guys are really going to appreciate that this it's although we've had a couple of amazing people talk about their career experiences and provide career advice and all of that and i've provided some advice from the community of listeners to fraudology as well as some of my own in a couple of the thursday solo episodes i think this story is pretty unique. And throughout it, she'll also share a lot of practical tips that she found to be very helpful to stand out as well as to select the right company. So my dear friend Jacqueline Hart is back on Fraudology. She was on one of the earliest episodes. I believe it was episode number 12 or 13. I know it was back in December of 2020, which feels like a lifetime ago to me. I'm sure it does to a lot of you too. For several reasons. But at the time, she was the senior director of trust and safety at Patreon and spoke passionately about how the company had grown so quickly during COVID and some of the things that her and her team needed to do to adjust to that growth and ensure that they were keeping their users and their company safe while that user numbers were just growing exponentially. And she talked a little bit about, you know, the history of her career as well. And so if you're curious, I, I recommend going back and listening to that episode. But today she's going to talk about what happened after we reported that podcast. And you will know pretty soon in the Interview: Why she hasn't been able to talk about this publicly until now, but she's such an awesome human that she reached out and said, "Hey, I have a week in between my most recent job and this new job that kind of came out of the blue." She'll talk about that too, and really speaks to the power of networking and you know, leaving great first impressions or second or third impressions of people within the industry. But she said, "I really like to tell my story," and I was like, "Let's go!" I love that about her. And I think she and I both agree. I mean, at least I can speak for myself that I feel like my experiences, which includes the times that I feel like I've failed. Are they have value when I share them with others and other people can learn from them or at least, you know, relate to them and be like, oh, OK, I'm not the only one who's been through that or felt that way or or whatever it is. So just a tiny bit of a recap on Jacqueline's career history, more for context for our conversation and to understand kind of what led up to this time in her life that she really dives into and is very vulnerable. And I just I'm really excited for you guys to hear it because I think that there will be a lot of people who appreciate it in different ways for different reasons. So like me, Jacqueline started out on the payment side of risk. I've said it before, I think that people who come into the e-commerce space, and I think this is probably applicable for any type of fraud prevention or any type of trust and safety or even in fintech, but when you come in from a different perspective, when you've worked for another entity within the payments ecosystem or whatever ecosystem you're within, whether that's banking or deposits or trust and safety or content or anything like that, you come in with just a different perspective than a lot of the other people. And that can have a lot of, value. We also enjoyed teaching out about payments and risk. So that's kind of fun, too. But so she started at the very beginning of PayPal in 2003. And she'll mention that in this episode, how most of her family thought that it was a scam when she first started. So it's, you know, she's often been at the ground floor of startups where her family members, especially she's from the Midwest in the U.S., and her family members are like, are you sure that's a business? (laughs) Because a lot of them are innovative business models that no one's heard of. And then what usually happens is two or three years into her employment. Everyone's heard of it, and they're like, "Wow, that's a cool company." That happened to her a few times. Then after eight years at PayPal. She went on to Thesis Merchant Services and then in Ingenico as their global head of risk and fraud for a combined six and a half years. She then entered the merchant and e-commerce side of fraud in 2017 when she moved to Dublin for a large online gambling company called Paddy Power Betfair. If you are in Europe or the UK, I'm sure you've heard of them quite a bit. I know they're not as common in the US, but that's probably changing soon with gambling changes, etc. Like we had Dominic's Leo on the podcast a few months ago talking about that. I don't know if that's the case for Patty that Bet- fair, but that could be a possibility. So after entering, by the way, I mean, having your first entry into e-commerce fraud for a large international gambling platform is quite, and that's trial by fire. I can relate to that as well. That's exactly what I love too. So after that, she went on to be the Senior Director of Global Trust and Safety at Patreon, which... If you haven't heard of it, it's a marketplace that allows online creators to create membership communities and monetize their fandom. And like I said, it really grew during the pandemic, so I am sure you have heard of it. And I know it's been very helpful to people who enjoy creating content and who are artists to be able to live off of that art, which is just a great mission. And then she'll share, so she'll be sharing in this episode that she has spent the last two years at Apple in product management for their trust and safety department for the App Store. But the path to that last role was not a straight line. And. Because we reported this while she was taking a break before her next role, which will be at another online behemoth, she wanted to share this story. And I just am appreciative and I hope you are too. The story of how one of the lowest points in her career led to one (laughs) once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And while we talk about those highs and lows, Jacqueline will also share great practical advice on selecting the role and the companies to apply for, how important the questions you ask as a candidate can be, and her advice for fraud fighters who may be feeling discouraged in their job searching journey. I have no doubt that you will enjoy this conversation with my friend and international fraud expert, Jacqueline Hart. Today, I am joined by one of truly one of my favorite people in fraud and trust and safety, Jacqueline Hart. I am so happy to have you back on the podcast.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, you were on one of the very first episodes of this solo podcast. And I've always appreciated your friendship and support and belief in me and all that. And We've been wanting to have this conversation for a while, but haven't been able to for reasons that will become apparent in a little bit. But if anyone hasn't gotten to see you speak at a conference or get to know you, I I just think you're a wealth of knowledge. And I'm excited that you wanted to talk about this too. (laughs) (laughs) But you're too kind to me, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I don't think so. But I mean, I told you the very first time I saw you speak at a Women in Trust event, this was years ago in San Francisco. I literally was like, oh. I need to be her friend and I hope I'm cool enough. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even joking. That was what was in my head. So (laughs) fate sealed. Yeah. On that day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, and we'll just dive in. I mean, catching up from our last conversation, which you were on Fraudology in December of 2020, feels like a lifetime ago, probably especially to you because there's been so many changes. But when we last spoke, you were the senior director of trust and safety for Patreon. And there have been a lot of changes in your career since then. And I would love for you to tell the story of the next like six or seven months after
1: we talked last on the podcast. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So when we caught up, I had taken on a new role, made a huge move. I'd moved overseas. I had been in the role for a hot minute, like matter of weeks. And the role was discontinued and the company went under. And somehow I was offered a role at Apple and it was in an area that I was not, uh, I'd never worked in before. It was in product. And so you and I continued to have some conversations there. And I took that role and that's what I've been doing for almost the past two years.
0: Yeah, so you're skipping ahead a lot, <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> I'm teasing you. Yeah. I mean, it it you went overseas for a job that, you know, was a really big title and, and big responsibilities. And that you were very qualified for. And I think it was within three or four weeks you were told that discontinued is probably the right word. I think it was, you know, a layoff of some sort. And here you were in another country during an international pandemic. <laughs> You and your husband had sold all your things and belongings in the U.S. and gone overseas and you really didn't know what what
1: was next. No, that's fair to say. Very fair to say. And like uh, an extreme low point, because I know we talked on our last podcast like I had been laid off before, but many years before, like in previous 08 downturn. And at that time I'd been offered a lower role and was in the position that I had to say yes, I had to take that. And I was like, I don't ever want to do that again. And this one I didn't have anything. Like I was whatever, like the thing that that people always say where it's like just no options, like wasn't really prepared to, to do anything. And so I had to pound the pavement and I hadn't, I didn't have leverage. Like so many times in my career, you move from one role to the next role and you have leverage, but being really on the back foot and you know saying like what is this gonna look like on my resume? Am I gonna have a gap? Am I gonna have to take a step down to take a step up? I wish I'd never taken on this role. I wish I'd never made this move. Like I had just signed a lease. Like I was days into a year-long lease and leases weren't doing much at that time because as you said, it was the middle of the pandemic. Like it was all of the terrible things at once. And it's hard to look at the silver lining when it just looks like everything's awful.
0: And that's why we wanted to talk about this today because you went through this at a time when actually there weren't. a ton of layoffs. I mean, your layoff was very specific to that company having a lot of issues and in hindsight, I think that it probably wouldn't take a rocket scientist to look at it and go, "Oh, this is probably why they didn't want someone that really understood trust and safety and anti-money laundering and all the other and compliance and all the other things that you've done in your career." They may have been like, "Oh shoot, we hired someone too smart that could, you know, see through things." That's my Opinion. I'm not going to have you say it, but I, I think that at the time, though, it was really hard not to take that personally. And I think that you can really empathize with a lot of the people in our industry now who are going through those feelings. And so I love the fact that while you are on a bit of a pause, a short pause, but, and we'll get to all that in a minute, you have the opportunity to speak publicly that you, this is what you wanted to talk about. And I remember those days and there were a couple of times we talked on Zoom and it was like Two in the morning in Europe, but your husband was working remote US hours. So you guys were both like kind of being nocturnal. And I mean, there were lots of tears and there was lots of questioning and doubting yourself that was so hard for me to understand because I, you know, just see how amazing you are. But I also know what it's like to question ourselves. I mean, I question myself all the time and people are like, wow, you're creating. I was like, no, we have no idea. So I think, you know, we all have a little bit of imposter syndrome and it's easy to think, what did I do? What did I do wrong? But I think I remember like you were there for three weeks what could you have done wrong but at the time I know that was just so hard and you're right like you felt like there wasn't a lot of leverage and one other thing about that time was that there weren't a lot of job openings then I feel like there's more now even though there's so many people laid off so it's a challenge and and a very competitive job market but there were a lot of companies that were just kind of standing still and had a freeze
1: Yep. no but you're absolutely right and I think it's it's impossible not to question yourself and then going back to the fact that it's not first time being without a job, then you start to go, oh, it's the whole like a crazy ex-boyfriend syndrome. If All your ex-boyfriends are crazy. You're the common factor. And you start to say like, if I've been the victim of this multiple times. Mm. Am I the common factor? What have I done to cause this? And I think that's an impossible thing to get away from. And even if you've only had it happen once, you're constantly asking yourself, there must have been something because, you know, if only 10% was laid off, why was I the one out of 10? And that is an extremely difficult thing to not get swept up in. And it's, Very difficult because if you don't start to question that, then, you know, there may be a bigger problem because if you're like, no, I'm amazing, I'm going to grab this next job and blah, blah, then I, I feel like you don't have any introspection as well. And so it's just natural to kind of go through the process and say... What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Like, how can I reset? What can I learn from this? Because otherwise, either you go into the downward spiral, or you're just so puffed up that maybe there's other other factors there. So I feel like it's natural.
0: It makes sense that you would feel those things because it didn't happen just once, and I can't imagine how difficult it would be to have kind of that. I don't. I feel like PTSD is overused, but like just that remembrance of that trauma, and then feel like okay, well. I'm the common denominator. But you're in tech. And the first layoff was in 2008, which we all know, you know it was a huge recession. And the second one was during a pandemic. And like we said, there were some unique factors to that company that went defunct because of some issues. And so it wasn't you, but it's so easy to get it. I 100% get that.
1: Yep. And that's the thing is like, it's, I do feel like it's part of the process to say, you know, like also just to regroup and say, so the next time, what am I going to do different? Because, you know, like you said, in tech, you will have it next time there is another job. There's so many up and coming companies. But also, as you said, like there's there, there were not as many jobs, I would say at that time, but it's also at a certain level of job. There's not as many. And so if you're looking for a director job and you want to be excited about the company that you're working for, but it is a difficult process, even if you have a job to sift through all of the companies and like, what are they selling or what are they like, sort of what's their mission statement and like, what's a company that I'm going to be excited about their mission and want to stay at for a while. And so sifting through those and finding the job that's at the right level, and especially like the smaller the company, the broader your remit. And then, you know, are you dealing with more things than you can take on? And it's just a lot to sift through when you have a job. But when you don't have a job, you're trying to make quick decisions. It's even worse.
0: Yeah. And fraud and trust and safety is pretty niche still. And that makes it really challenging, especially the higher up you go, just like you said, right, to find any jobs and then to find the right job for you. Are your values aligned Are you know, your skill sets aligned? Is it going to help you grow and learn in a new thing? Because you and I are both very curious and avid learners. So, you know, we don't want to do the same thing, exact same thing we did before. That makes it even harder. And then for employers, it's also hard, right, to find the right people because it is niche and there are only so many, but I do feel like it's growing so much and there is more competition there, but there used to be, but certainly, yeah, between hiring freezes and you being in a different country, which I know is also a challenge. You're like, ah, i just just a lot. And I remember knowing in my gut, like there wasn't any uncertainty at all that you were going to be fine. But I also knew that I, when I hit my low point, that's the hard hardest thing to to know because you can't see the path forward because you're getting rejection emails or you can't find a good one or don't know how
1: you're going to move back or just all the logistics get out of your lease. I mean, it was it was a lot. Well, and for how long is the next question? Mm. You know, I was like, sure, yes, I'll I'll find another role. There will be something else for me. But six months, a year, like how do you know how long it's going to take? And in 08, it was really bad it wasn't i know this pandemic with the uh, mm. plenty of jobs that are available like but nobody knew i guess in december and late 2020 that that was going to be the case but mm. being able to say what am i going to do do i start my own company do i pound the pavement harder do i just take anything that's available is that's a lot of questions to kind of sort through and you're right. It, you have to make it quickly, too,
0: because there's bank account balances and pressure and all of that. And a lot of us in this industry did not want to be bored for long. I know for me, I have to feel like I'm making an impact or else I kind of get into a depression. But you are and were at the time highly respected in the trust and safety and fraud industry, especially in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And you had a lot of great connections and references, but it still wasn't super easy for you to find the next role, like you said. So what were some of the qualities you were looking for? in your next job at the time, especially after, you know, your last experience. How are you pre-qualifying or researching if companies you applied
1: for were to going to be a good fit? Like all those things. Yep. So for me, you know, there's there's only so much, obviously, that you can read about a company. Yeah. (laughs) before you have your interviews so you can read and say, like, yes, I like the mission of what this company is doing or what they're selling. And so I had a number of calls with different startups that were in areas that I was like, yes, I feel passionately about, you know, this area or yes, I can stand behind the mission of what they're doing and help them fight fraud. But then there's also when you get down to meeting people and asking questions, because I know you read all the time where they say, ask questions in the interview. And I'm such a firm believer in asking questions during the interview and sometimes cheeky questions because the more questions you can ask, because it, it sounds silly and I know everybody says it as well, but like it is a two-way interview. But if you can find out like talking to someone, like what do they feel about the mission What's their turnover like? Do people actually take vacation at this company or do people work themselves to death? Some of these are really important things to kind of suss out. And also like, you know, how long do typically people stay there? Are there people with a lot of tenure? Is everyone my age or is everyone very young or is everyone in their 60s? Because it makes a big difference at the company to like the direction and how quickly things, you know, shift and change. But additionally, if the executive group is constantly turning over, That's a really important signal that you've got to be ready for that company to be making quick pivots. And do you like quick pivots? And just asking about what has your your previous mission been in the the fraud department of the trust and safety department and how many pivots have you had recently? And asking people in the interview process how they feel about that or how decisions get made at the company, because sometimes there will be an audience of one and every presentation goes to one specific person and they say yes or no. Other companies are like, make the decision at the lowest level possible, get it off my desk. And so just knowing like how those things work so that you know what you're getting into, taking the time to do that, I think was uh, really important for me anyway. And something that I always tell people that that's what you got to get down to.
0: Well, and I think that it also shows, I mean, as someone who's hired before and you have too, like it shows that you're really thinking things through and you don't want this to be a short decision you know, quick decision for a short amount of time and you want to find the right fit for you which ultimately will be the right fit for them i think that that's those are all really good things i am very curious to know an example of a cheeky question which i just you know I, because i think that the, you're right like sometimes bringing some humor into it or seeing if they have some humor is also important because you know we can work long days and work on some heavy stuff sometimes and so we need to know that there's Yes, you can get out of business, but you
1: can have a little bit of humor too and all that. And, and so to me, I feel like some of the, the best cheeky questions to ask are getting down to that. What are the ways that people blow off steam or like, what's the most creative way that your, your teams blow off steam? Because, yeah. you know, if somebody says something that sounds very, I don't know, like, corporate. Not be, yeah. Much yeah, like a very corporate or yes, sometimes we go out and have one beer and that's all. Then you're like, oh, okay. Versus somebody else who's has something that you're like, wow, I can absolutely see myself there because that's really like a great, you know, way for teens to come together or if they say like i we've never done anything like that those are all very interesting yeah to your question. And I think also just getting down, I guess the other thing I think about with like cheeky questions is what kind of a shop are you? Are you a a shop that like, what type of devices do you use? Or do you let people work from home? Things like that, that I think five years ago, nobody would ask that question, but just actually finding out like, you know, what are, what's your corporate travel policy, Mm. things of that nature, where you just, you know, a little bit more about the company and how... The things that they find to be important.
0: Yeah. Another question that I suggest people ask sometimes when I know that there's someone who really loves to share information with others in our industry is how do you feel about employees speaking at conferences or... On podcasts, things like that. And I know that, you know, obviously you worked for most recently for an organization that has a policy of that, not that doesn't usually happen. And that, you know, there are some things that maybe you're like, it's a pandemic and there aren't really a lot of conferences right now. And I can live without that. Then you kind of balance it out when you're talking about like how employees will last steam. I instantly thought about one of my very first jobs in fraud and it wasn't very long because it <laughs> was an odd fit. And I got offered, you know, a position to start and run my own fraud department. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go over there. It was for a small, like very geeky online gaming company and everyone had a Nerf gun and they all modified them to be like really strong. You know, so they took out the piece that makes them be a little bit weak (laughs) and There, You just would be very common to just see somebody randomly stand up from their cubicle and just shoot off a Nerf gun. And yeah, as silly as that was, like that was kind of fun sometimes too. Now, granted, I was also like hiding under my desk on Fridays sometimes. But, you know, just knowing those types of things, are you able to be lighthearted or is everything serious?
1: But it's important. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, do you like that type of thing too? Because I've also known people that are like, I would hate that and being self-aware and and knowing are those the things that are very important to me or are they not? Or do I hate social hour and Um, I, you know, being around people after hours at the office and I know that this office does a lot of things on the weekend or mm. there's a lot of like interaction and am I into that or am I not?
0: Well, that same company every Friday afternoon had like somewhat mandatory game time, like board games and and card games and, and video games, stuff like that. And I was a single mom at the time, and I was like, I would much rather go pick up my daughter and take her to a park. If I'm not doing my job and making an impact, like, what am I doing? But there were other people who that was their favorite part of the week. And so to your point, it's finding the right fit for you, which ultimately will find the right fit for them, too. And I love all those questions because I do think that there are a lot of people that are like, I don't know what I should ask. But that is something that comes with experience and with being in different culture, company cultures, especially in technology. There is a range. (laughs) big time. I've been able to been very lucky to go to so many different corporate offices and you can feel it in the air. And yeah, they all might have a ping pong table and a keg, but that doesn't mean that they're all like fun and and whatever. And there's that balance, right? But I think that especially in trust and safety and fraud, we are sometimes dealing with heavy things. So there should be like some kind of a balance and camaraderie. And Having remote workers is a little bit more challenging for that, but there are some companies that are finding some really creative ways to still, you know, bond as teams and do all that. So
1: I think that's all really important. Yep, I think you're right. And also, when you have interviews with different people, I always try to ask different questions of each person and like have those questions ready based on mm-hmm. when you look at their LinkedIn. You know, obviously, like if most people through <laughs> in front dress and city like to do research yes. and like know <laughs> a lot of things, and so you know who these people are a little bit like by their online presence. And so you can tailor the questions to them. And if there's cross-functional partners, like finding out like, what are the kinks or like, what are the things where things don't work well? And like actually hearing about where things are are rough, then it can help you also say, oh, this, this shop sounds like it works more functionally than the other one. Or this one, products and operations never talk to each other. And this one, they're best friends. you know, where would you be more successful?
0: Mm. Yeah. Sometimes I I would ask, and actually I do this in consulting as well. when I'm talking cross-functional teams, like what? What is your impression of the fraud team or the trust and safety team? What What do you think they need to do better? I have gotten some gold out of that that the fraud or trust and safety team didn't even think about or know, you know, whether they didn't ask or, or maybe they did, but there was some contention between the departments and the leaders or whatever, you know, and also asking people that report up to the hiring manager, you know, their experiences as well, I think is really important and finding that that right fit. I didn't do that at the beginning of my career. I, I learned a lot of lessons. You know, you learn sometimes you learn what you want
1: by having what you don't want. <laughs> very true. And the other thing about some of it is sometimes you just don't have the luxury of even caring. Because I remember some point in in my early career, I was like, I just need this job. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if the manager is terrible. It doesn't matter if the yeah. job is very difficult because I just need this job and and I want this job, or the job sounds so amazing that I can overlook so many <laughs> other things. It's true. And I've said that and
0: said something similar in previous episodes because I've done kind of a block of episodes for people that are job seekers or or looking for roles because I really like to provide topical content. And I feel like that's where a lot of people are right now. And if you're not there, you can feel gratitude that you aren't. But at the same time, I think that even the people, just in talking to people that haven't been laid off, there's still that fear that it could happen. Or there's that they laid off half my team and now they have twice as much work and now I want to go somewhere else or doesn't look like there's a path for a promotion anymore. So I want to go a step up somewhere else. There's just a lot of movement right now. And I've said that too, like not everybody has the luxury to be able to wait a few months or be picky, right? But it's okay to find something that will be good enough for right now. And then I have one or two companies I worked for for a short stint earlier on in my career that aren't on my LinkedIn because it wasn't a good fit and one was the gaming company obviously but that doesn't thankfully it hasn't really hurt my career much and I still learned a lot from those companies of what I want next time I didn't ask enough questions or it was a need I mean for that company I was in a long-distance relationship with who the person who's now my husband but that was 15 years ago and I just wanted to move across the state And that was the first job I got. And then, you know, once a company that I had worked with at my previous role before I moved learned that I was in their city, they reached out. So yeah, sometimes you just take what you need to and then find that next thing. You have a little bit of time. And also, I think in our industry, or maybe it's our generation, there aren't many people that are at the same company for their whole career or even more than five years. Like when I worked for the trade association, we did a, an official study, but we looked at how often individual members requested to be moved to a company within our records.
1: And it was every two to three years. That's pretty common becoming so much more common. And I think the other interesting thing is even if you have a job that you love, it's nice to know what your value is. And so going out and talking to some other companies just to see potentially you could come back to your, you know, I've I've had it many times as a manager where somebody comes back and says, look, this is what the market is paying. Would you care to pay me accordingly? Or, and sometimes they say no. And then you're like, wow, I'm going to have to go take that other role because it's, it's paying a lot more money. Or maybe they'll compensate you more than you were being compensated, but it's nice to at least know what you're worth or to say, yuck, it is really scary out there. I appreciate my job even more. Yeah. I've had that as well. <laughs> like, oh,
0: I had a few interviews and yeah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> and sometimes it reminds you like, okay, things aren't so bad. That's a really good point. And I mean, all of them are of course, but I think that It's such a challenge for people in leadership, in trust and safety and fraud to make sure that they're paying their people accordingly. Robert Kaps and I had this conversation several weeks ago because it came up in one of the merchant collaboration calls I run. Is Hey, we have I'm trying so hard to get my HR to pay my analyst more, especially because our biggest competitor is in the same town and they pay a lot more. And so basically I'm just becoming a training ground for analysts and they use the same system and everything else. So like I'm just becoming a training ground for them and I'm doing everything I can. And because there aren't salary benchmarks geographically for our fairly new emerging industry, that can be a challenge too. But that is one way to know what the market is, is to apply at other places and like, do recommend wanting, and I, I know you weren't saying this, but like if you go to your boss or your manager and say, "Hey, I was offered X," you gotta be prepared to take that job. I've seen it backfire a few times.
1: Yep, <laughs> yep. I, and myself <laughs> or you. calling your bluff.
0: Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So, what is Sardine? I mean. Other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other people business models. For some clients, they use sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. (laughs)
1: Totally, totally. Because I think I can't remember, if we talked about this the last time, but you know, when I was at PayPal, Mm. I had interviewed for another role. And I remember coming to my boss and saying, hey, I got this other offer. Would you care to make a counter offer? And my boss said, nope, you're well compensated. And I was like, wow, I'm going to have to go take this new role. And it's one of the best things I ever did Mm. was actually going and leaving my company and trying something new and realizing I had a lot of knowledge. Otherwise, I could still be there today. yeah. I'm a big proponent, and
0: I know not everyone would agree with it, but I think in this industry, when you stay at one company too long, unless the company has multiple business models, and you're moving around, and you're maybe you're in product, and then you're in operations, and then you're—I think it's important to move around. Otherwise, your knowledge becomes stale, and and it isn't applicable. And I do know that there are some people who are in that position now, and a lot of it had to do with geography, right? There weren't remote jobs for a long time, so the company they worked for, the bank, they worked for was the only one in town or one of the only ones and it was the best one. So they stayed, but now they're like, oh, I just have this one set of skills and I know how it works there, but I don't know how to apply it anywhere else. And it's really challenging. So I had a proponent of kind of, I guess it's the Sheryl Sandberg theory because Kevin Lee shared it. Once I can't remember if I was on this podcast or not, or the other one I was on, but where she says that it's important to kind of treat your career like a playground, where like you're going different toys are different pieces of the puzzle, right? So product and people management and operations and analysis and data and all those pieces, so you really understand everything from every level and every angle. And you've done that. I mean, you've been on the acquiring side. You've been in online betting and gambling. You've been Patreon is digital goods good market. Place with a lot of crazy nuances, you know? So I think that that's something that you've done very well as well. And it has really helped you as well as every company you've gone to next because you have so much different knowledge and experiences to draw from.
1: I think the other important thing about that, thinking about that as well, is there's only so many moves you have in your career. Because if you think like, I'm going to be working for 20 or 25 years and you think, so you stay an average of three years, you have eight jobs, like that's not that many places. And also thinking about when you, they always tell you to diversify your investments, but it's the same with a job because if you've worked one place, Your whole life. Like, I Mm. have known people where they're like, oh my goodness, the company went under, the stock tanked, you know, something terrible happened. And that's where I had all of my equity. So, if you have worked
0: several Mm. different
1: places, then at least you've diversified as well.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I was just realizing I've almost worked 25 years now. (laughs) So, for me, it's going to, I'll be working a lot more than that. But, you know, that's what happens when you're self employed and you don't have equity, but that's okay. I mean, I guess I have equity in this, but in, we're not IPOing anytime soon. But, so, how did you? I mean, just kind of going back a tiny bit to
1: when you were looking, how did you stay positive and focused? Or did you? Obviously there's ups and downs with it because it thankfully, like I wasn't looking for long enough to like really get into a place where it's, I'm never going to get another job or maybe I should switch types of jobs because thankfully, you know, some interviews started and I actually was making a little bit of progress. And so for me, it was about like keeping a routine so that, you know, every day I was like, okay, I'm going to apply for this many jobs. You know, of course respond if somebody's scheduled me for interviews, but just keep a schedule so that I wasn't losing my mind or like watching television all day and staying up all night. And because that very easily could have happened, but it was all about keeping things organized and making sure that my priority when I didn't have a job was finding a job.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, on that note, and we mentioned it earlier, but there are a lot of people now who are in a similar position as you were at that time. And they're probably not on another continent during an international pandemic, because that was also crazy. Like you had to go over there and quarantine profiles and start the job. Like it was nuts, but. There are people that are unemployed and unsure of what the future we hold in it can feel pretty uncertain. And it's you and I both know that fear and uncertainty and doubt can easily take hold to make us question if there will be another job opportunity soon or you know anything, just all those things that it's tied to so much, right? It's tied to how you take care of your family and yourself and your future and all of that, that it can be very emotional. So what are some of the things that helped you keep putting one foot in front of the other to try to keep trying and applying for new positions? And then did you you get any advice that you would share with others in our industry who may be feeling discouraged in their job search?
1: I think the the most important thing is to say do I like this area? Do I mm. like fraud? Do I like trust and safety? Do I like risk? Because I've known some people that are like I don't really like it, but it does seem like there's a lot of jobs there. And mm. that makes it hard to like keep with it. But to me, when I found fraud so many years ago, I was like this is something I love. Like it's exciting, it changes every day. I want to keep with this. I want to keep, you know, doing jobs in this field. And so to me, going back to the thing that you were saying about like trying different areas, We'll see you next time. I just knew that I wanted to be somewhere in risk. And so whether I worked for a vendor, a payment service provider, a bank, a merchant, to me, I just I knew that the common thread was I wanted to be fighting bad guys and I wanted to, you know, making things safer for customers, for, I guess, people in our lives. But I think about, too, that thinking about like the way to stay positive also is I remember many, many years ago somebody saying like, oh, it's too bad that you picked this as your career because machines are going to do your job pretty soon. And like, it's, that has been a constant that I've been waiting every year. Okay. Machines are going to take over my job (laughs) this year, you know? And it's always like, no, there's more and more need for actual humans to be the ones building systems and putting things in place. And there's constantly more bad actors and there's constant need for people in different roles at different companies. Cause I think it was my grandmother after I was in it for a few years and she was like, yeah, I think this fraud thing is really taking off. And she was, uh, she was, was correct because yeah. you know, every year there's more and more roles. There's more and more companies. There's more and more places, even people that think they don't have a fraud problem. It becomes inevitable that something happens at a certain point. Everyone needs a fraud team or at least one person. And so there's always more roles, even if it's not this month, even if things are tight now, there's always more. Well, yeah. And there's so many new business
0: models popping up. Like when I think about the business models that came out of the 2008 crisis, right? Ubers, I mean, marketplaces, right? With buyers and sellers and real world consequences, you know, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, the Lyfts, that all those things came out of that. And that created a very big need for large trust and safety departments and doing very unique things, right? So some of them are very much focused on payment fraud and chargebacks, you know, like a traditional e-commerce company. But if they have user-generated content, I mean, you know this better than I do from Patreon, There's content moderation that needs to happen to keep that trust going with you, your good users. There's so many different aspects depending on the company. There's, you know, insurance claims. If there's real world impacts, there's so many different things that it is continuing to grow. And yeah, I mean, we have machines that are doing some of the things that we did 15 years ago, but I don't know anyone that's upset that they're not like manually running a whole bunch of SQL queries every day or, you know, looking at a whole Bunch of manual review, right? Instead, the machinery is helping us narrow it down so that we're more efficient and effective with our time. But it's not like they're, the robots are going to take over the world. I mean, I've heard that as well. I'm like, well, okay, well. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, I've seen that. Automation is great, but there should still be humans, at least with the strategy and the processes around the automation and the policies and all of that. So you're absolutely right that that's, you know, it's something that's growing. But to your point, like it's important to make sure that it is something that you love and that you're going to be curious and enjoy it every day because it can be a slog. And, you know, while there are some great opportunities, not everyone is going to, you know, become a millionaire because they got equity. In stock in a startup, you know, like going to retire billionaires by any means. It, we do it because we love it, and because it's a passion, and it's something that it's a passion and a purpose that we all you know, really feel fulfilled by. So. I think that's very important, too, is making sure that that's what you want to do. Is there anything that made you feel like resilient to this? I mean, I know when you were in it in the moment, it was like, oh, my gosh, like, how is this going to get better? But, you know, you've had some ups and downs throughout your career. so did that help you have a little bit of hope or maybe continue and keep going?
1: Oh, 100%. 100%. Because when I went through the the 2008 layoff, I really did say, okay, maybe I need to go back to school. Maybe I need to take a different profession. Maybe I need to think about my options versus having been in and seen so many cycles of like boom and bust and companies need you. Companies don't need you. They're slimming things down. They're building things up. Like everybody cares about fraud now. Nobody cares about fraud anymore. And it definitely has those cycles. And so having been through it a few times, I think gave me more perspective this round versus the last round where it was much more of a question everything, the question your whole career. Like, should I go back to teaching? That's what my degree is in. Like, you know, I did not have those thoughts this time. Right. You knew what you loved and you knew that
0: there would be opportunity so speaking of opportunity, you landed a job and it was not just a job, but the right next role for you. And you mentioned it earlier, but what company hired you and what can you say about the role that you helped to create in a new area of business for trust and safety? And maybe you tell me about
1: why you chose to work for them in this role. Absolutely. So it was Apple and the app store specifically that is where my role came from. And it was a major shift for me because the role is a product manager role. And so actually building for the app store features that help keep it the most safe and trusted marketplace.
0: I'm so proud of you. I've told you that a million times, but it's just, you know, when you told me that and then the times that we've spoken over the last years that you've been there, what little you've been able to share with me and and some of the bigger things you've been able to do, like getting these big presentations ready for large events and things like that. I'm just like, that's right. That's my friend. Like, I knew you were going to do big things, but that was easy for me to feel in the moment, but harder for you. And what was it about them that that made you feel like that? Because I know that you had a couple other iron and the fire and other opportunities to consider. But what was it about that that made, was it because it was in product and it was new and you would kind of blaze your own trail
1: or was there other factors For sure. I mean, the the ship to product was super interesting to me simply because you have control of the roadmap in a lot of ways. And it's a different way of impacting things versus historically, I've always been in operations, which Mm -hmm. I always felt like was the most impactful thing. But you're doing a lot of influencing and quiet influencing. And, you know, you don't have a team of engineers uh, to work with when you're in operations. But in in product, you are coming up with lots of ideas and, and ways to fix problems that people in operations are seeing. And so, I thought, what an interesting additional layer of things or like an additional point, point of view to to consider as it comes to risk and trust and safety and whatnot. But then also considering it was Apple, I was like, there's no job that I've ever had that would have that kind of reach because yeah. I've worked a lot of places where people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. You must have fallen for a scam because you <laughs> started working at PayPal. People couldn't remember the name because it was the early 2000s. Yeah, and you they you started like, early. Yeah. Yeah. And so people were like, oh, I hope you're going to get a paycheck. I hope they're paying you in advance. And it was the same thing with Patreon where people were like, who, what? Yeah. During the pandemic, people know the name, but at the time it was only my nephews. All the adults were like, oh, she fell for another scam. <laughs> I got to visit you in that
0: office several times. And I tell you, it is not a scam. It was a really nice office. It's hard but to I,
1: convince people, though. Anybody yeah. was over 35 was like, no, oh, true. No. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, you're talking to somebody who worked for a rental, a handbag and accessory rental company in the in 2008 and nine, like. People are like, who would rent a Chanel handbag, especially during an economic crisis? I'm like, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> the people who want their friends to see them with one, but they can't afford it. But also reality stars, TV stars, TV shows, so they don't have to buy the item. You know, I mean, there's so many things, but yeah, I anywhere I went, I'd have to... Explain the business model. And I know you had to do that too. So you're right. This time you just got to say Apple with a period
1: at the end and not
0: have to really answer any question. <laughs> there's no, it's something very nice unusual,
1: that. very unusual for <laughs> me to work at a place where people know the name of the company.
0: But that's almost saying something right because you and I both love a challenge and there's something really challenging about emerging business models and places that might sound like a scam but actually are legitimate
1: <laughs> because they're going to have risk. <laughs> that, that was one of the things that when... When I was talking to Apple and I was like, I don't know. I don't think I'm the right person for this job because usually people only call me when things are bad. Mm. Like I usually put out fires. I'm usually the one that you call because <laughs> everything is the house is on fire. Yeah. Yeah. There- You know, it's Apple's not on fire. And so I was like, I'm not used to getting attention from somebody who doesn't have a problem. Actually build things for the future was very unusual for me. And that Mm. was also very interesting.
0: Yeah, I've come to fall in love with product in some aspects as well. From a consulting perspective, I've been working on a a product with a with a provider on return fraud claims. And that's been really fun for me to think about it in a totally different way, right? Instead of putting out the fire, how can we like proactively control it? From a technology perspective, and I agree, it's something that is fun and it's another layer or feather in your cap, as they say, right, that you can really do that. So I'm asking this question on purpose, and I know you know why. When you were making the decision to take that role with Apple, did you think that you were qualified for it
1: when you were hired? No, no, 100% I did not. And I remember having a conversation with you specifically (laughs) and saying, I don't know why they're interested in me for this role. I'm not qualified. I don't have product experience. Yes, I've been in fraud. Yes, I've been in trust and safety. Yes, I've done a lot of things over my years, but this is a very serious role with a very serious company. What if I crash and burn? And I believe that you said to me, like, there's a lot of smart people that have interviewed you for this role. Like, Are you... are you better than these people? Are you smarter than these people? <laughs> you're going to tell these people like I'm not qualified and not take this role. And then you also gave me some very sage advice by saying, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm sure that with all your knowledge, they'll find another place for you. If you really crash and burn in this role, yeah. there's other things that you could do for this company. And that was that was such wise, wise advice. <laughs> it's so much easier to give
0: advice when you're
1: outside of the panic so
0: you can say that <laughs> Yeah, I didn't totally remember saying that afterwards, but you reminded me of that a few months later. You, I think you said something like, I've heard you in my head a few times where you're like, are you calling the people that interviewed you stupid? <laughs> but I think it was, I know that you and I think so much similarly. And so I just knew I kind of had to be blunt about it and very common sense and logical. And, you know, I get it. I mean, we all are like, mm, I don't know. And in fairness to you, like the title wasn't interested and in safety. So it was like, wait, this, second. You know, what is this? And they're kind of known for being vague before you assign all the paperwork to become an employee. So I knew that as well from knowing people there. So I had that benefit too. of They know what they're looking for more than you know what they're looking
1: for. So you know, that was kind of more hard. what I meant. <laughs> There's a lot of interviews too. So it's, it's not like, you know, right. there've been other places where I've worked where you'll have one interview and they'll be like, do you want the job? And then you go, oh my goodness, I only got to talk to one person. And you know, you can always ask for more people to, so that you, get a better feel for it. But usually I'm like, oh my goodness, if only one person talked to me, they may not be great at making the decision. But, you know, with somebody like Apple, where they have you interview with so many people over such a long time, like they're very serious about making sure it's right for them and right for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of those top
0: tier technology companies are like that. I mean, sometimes it's just panels of people and you're like, oh my gosh. But Yeah, I mean, and I like I've said so many times, I think it's easier to see the brilliance and what makes someone special and really good for things when you're not that person, you don't have those thoughts in your head. So I had that benefit. But I think that's important for people to hear because not not the fact that I gave good advice. I was just as surprised as anyone else that you, that you thought I was smart and that you took it. But I think a lot of us, and it's especially women, but it's not just us who often will limit ourselves. I mean, there's studies behind it, right? And so I think it's really good to, you know, hear you say that, right? I didn't think I could do it. But you know, I mean, I had a friend who basically dared me to. So I mean, like, what do I have to lose, right? And so during your time at Apple, I mean, you were there for you know almost two years and got to work and lead, like we said on it, some really cool projects. And I don't. Know many details of them because, you know, Apple doesn't just preach privacy to their users. They ensure that their employees are also protecting the company's privacy and sharing too many details. So I respect that. But what would you say some of the highlights and lowlights were for you in this role? I and mean, you can be as general as you need to be. <laughs>
1: I mean, I would I would say the highlights of the role, there's just like you said, Apple has some principles that they just stick to so heavily. And seeing a company that has an incredible mission, but actually like practices what they preach is incredible, but also being able to see how it works from the inside was fascinating to me because, you know, I've worked at mostly startups or small companies, or even PayPal now is a very large company. But when I worked there, it was, it was pretty startupy where you could be like, Hey, get a couple of engineers together and, and be like, let's do something. And it, it would come out within weeks or months. Like we thought that weeks or months was a long time, but a company like Apple is so complex and there's so many inner workings that go together. They're planning things just years in advance and it's absolutely incredible to see something like that work. And so if anybody ever, you know, has an offer from a large institution like that, that is just so incredibly valuable to contrast it at least between there's some things that are great about startups, but there are some things that are just really great About large institutions and seeing how they make things work. So, I would say those are some of my best highlights.
0: Yeah, I have that experience as well. When I was on the merchant side, I started out at a startup and then I went over to Expedia, and there's definitely a contrast. And I also learned that, and this is something that I've told several people recently when they've been kind of considering what type of role to go for and what company and all that, similarly to the checklist that you talked about earlier. I learned that for me, I work better as a big fish in a small pond. It's not that I think that I'm better than anyone or anything. I just, I really want to try out my ideas, right? Throw things up against the wall and and not have everything by committee or have to go up a hierarchy or anything like that. But there are other people that are exceptional at being a small fish in a big pond. And both are neat and they love it. And both are needed. And sometimes when you're that small fish in a big pond, you can benefit from a lot of great like company perks and benefits because you're a startup, you don't really get those. And sometimes you can have a little more work-life balance. Other times, not so much, but that's why all those questions at the beginning are good. But I think those are really good points. What are some of the lessons that you learned in that role like
1: in a product role that you may not have gotten to learn anywhere else? I mean, I think some of the the biggest lessons I learned is like cross functional partners mm. and like the benefits of cross functional partners because I think being in operations you can throw a lot of people at a problem or solve problems by just saying we we can work around that or just because we don't have a system like we can do something, we can like kind of make things happen, but in products you are very much like having to get everybody on the same page or having to like really put your vision to the test where Mm. you can i think make more mistakes as an operations leader and sort of cover those up a bit but in product that's you can't like make anybody do anything really and so you have to be like on your game everything has to be tip-top you have to get everybody seeing your vision and on the same page and then somehow see it through yeah, it's a planning aspect, right? Versus the trial
0: and error versus the fighting the fire in the moment. And here's here's a bucket of something, let's throw it at it. That's more way operations on the, on the front line versus like, you know, planning about it and talking about fire season months in advance and thinking about how we're going to approach it. And both are equally important, but they're very different parts of your brain. And different types of strategy and thinking about it. Very well said. I literally just folded it out of my back pocket, but I have a fairly good understanding of it. I wish I could say that analogy I've said all the time, but nope, first time. (laughs) You know, so moving on to some other, what I think is exciting news, you've recently accepted a role with an equally well-known and respected company. So now I don't think we can say you work for small scrappy startups as much anymore. Where are you headed next? And how
1: did that change come about? Yep. So I am heading to an opportunity with Google Next, and I've known a few people that that work there. And so I have to say, yeah, friends, word of mouth, things like that. That's what led me to my next adventure. Because like I said, you're pretty well known in the trust and safety space in the Bay Area, or at least well
0: respected. You're far too cut. Far too <laughs> cut. Well, and... I mean, not that I live in the Bay Area, but I certainly feel like everybody I know knows you thinks the world of you. So maybe that's biased through it from my perspective. But I mean, that was the case, right? I mean, I often say this in relation to vendor behavior, but this is a small industry with long memories. And I've seen it work out a lot for people who are really good in this space that whether you've worked with them or you've met them at roundtables or conferences or meetups or whatever. If an opportunity comes up, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing Jacqueline speak at this thing one time or whatever. And, huh, see if she's, you know, because it's not like you were actively looking. I mean, you really shocked me <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. When you're like, I'm not an apple anymore. Wait, what? <laughs> What happened? I didn't see any headlines about Apple doing layoffs. What is going on? That was my first thought, because that's usually when I get a text message or a message about that, that's usually the case. But I also wasn't surprised and I'm excited for you. And I'm hopeful that you'll be able to come back to the podcast when you are in full time employment as well. But this is a great little brief interlude where we could take advantage of it, where you're kind of a free agent (laughs) for a little bit. But as we're wrapping up, you and I both share a passion for the job and for fraud fighting and all of that, but also... Like compassion for the people in our industry. And in some ways, like a big sister taking care of the, the younger ones, because, oh, you know, this industry hasn't been around that long. So we can call ourselves veterans in our mid But what do you hope that other front payments people learn from your experience? And what advice do you have for them, or for
1: those that are experiencing the fear and doubt around what's next? Yep. So I've thought about this a bunch and I feel like the the common factor for me is like being okay with failure. And I know you don't like that word failure, but that's a well, <laughs> <feel. It laughs> you. You sounds- wanted to call that
0: tying your failure. And I was like, I don't think you failed. I don't think you did anything wrong. But failure is obviously. I mean, I certainly look back at my life and I see some big areas of failure, but for that specific situation, you know, where you moved across the world for a position that you asked all the right questions and you did all the right things and then they had their own issues and let you go within like three or four weeks. Like to that, to me, I didn't think that was a failure. That was where our... Our text
1: disagreement came from. (laughs) But failure in general can happen. (laughs) But being open to failure, I feel like is really like Mm. the most important factor because just being able to step out and make that first step. I feel like that's where a lot of people get caught and where it's very easy to get caught and saying like, no, I need to be so sure and everything needs to be clear to me. Usually that is something that I'm okay with is like stepping out and saying, we'll figure it out later. And I feel like that's such an important quality of just going back to like startups. And sometimes they don't always have it all figured out. And if I needed <laughs> to have a whole list of this is exactly what my role is going to be or what I'm going to do, or thinking back to the first time I took a manager job, it was because I was like, I didn't think my boss was doing a great job. And, and I was like, I think I could probably do it better. And just stepping off that cliff and saying, we'll figure it out. We'll find the next step. Mm. And the same thing with when you and I talked, you know, when the Apple had called and I was like, we'll figure it out. We'll take that step into the great abyss and a path will appear. And so I hope other people are okay with that. And if other people can take a step off that cliff, I do feel strongly that just being open to the failure or the potential of failure is such a game changer. You're so right. And something
0: that I Kind of this aha moment I had when I was faced with: Do I start my own company? Do I not? Like without a secure paycheck and all of that. And there were other factors in my life with my health and burnout and all that, where I really couldn't work a full time job at that point. So didn't have a choice, and I had a really good opportunity to have a part-time consistent paycheck, you know, paycheck for a while to get it off the ground and all that. But something that I realized in that time when I was thinking about it was how difficult it is for those of us who have been in risk. And our whole job is to look for risks for our company, for ourselves, for everything. It makes you risk adverse in your own life. And so I think that that's really good advice because a lot of us are terrified of, well, what if it doesn't work? What if it's not perfect? Well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I mean, you will come out of it with either what you want or what you don't want. And you will have, you know, a few paychecks and you'll start again. And I mean, I'm not saying that that would be good to happen over and over and over again. And that's probably when you have to be like common denominator. But once a while, it happens. I mean, it's happened to me. It's happened to you where like everything looked great and sounded great. Oh my gosh. I had one... The other role that isn't on my LinkedIn or my resume, it was a total bait and switch. I mean, the things that I was told I would be doing and that the company was ready for and all of that, that was not the case. And I had I was determined to make it work. It was like I was a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. And fortunately, a very good friend of mine is no longer with us, but he was, you know, in the industry and he knew them and he was like, Carice, you need to stop trying to make it work. I'm like, no, 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 I can make it. He's like, no, no, it's not going to work. They're not the team. This is not the company. It's not what you thought. And you need to stop. And that was hard, but it was important. And I bounced back. And sometimes what I like to do is what I used to call thinking backwards, where when I'm scared about what could happen in the future, I think about the hard stuff I've gotten through in the past. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about too. Like, you know, okay, I was laid off before and then I got a better job and then a better job and then a better job. And same thing for me too. I mean, it is never far from my mind that 17 years ago, I was a single mom making $11 an hour and a college dropout at that. So if I... Overteen that, you know, like I can figure it out. There's an author who, the title of her book is actually Everything is Figure Outable. And that's actually become a mantra of mine. And it's funny to hear my husband say it now, because I know he probably doesn't even know it's a book, but be like, well, everything's figurative," And I'm like, oh, yes, I just needed to hear that. And another one of my husband's favorite phrases that he read somewhere and it's just kind of stuck. It's, I think, a Buddhist proverb, but it says leap and the net will appear. And I think that's pretty much what you said. I wrote that down when you were talking about, like, just do the jump and it'll happen. And I mean, I'm not saying like, take the craziest thing in the world, but obviously if like, the only thing holding we'll you back is your doubt and your your risk feelings. Like to your plea. I think that's really important to not be afraid of failure
1: because it's not failure if you learn something. Yep. But I also think one other thing. I heard a very smart person say that you should take a long time to hire and be quick to not catch a falling knife because as so many people feel like they've invested so much time. And so you have to keep investing and maybe it'll get better or maybe the company will do all the things that they said in the interviews. <laughs> it's bad. Right. Like you need to make the call and not invest more time because you're just throwing good time after bad time. And so take a long time to get to know mm. or as long as you need to get to know who you are hopping into business with to be your future employer. But if it's not working out, don't feel like you know, if mm-hmm. it is a bad environment or if it's or something that, like fundamentally, it's not what I thought it was. It's so much easier to, to cut your losses and move on. Then keep investing in it and say, oh, I gave it five years. Like, yeah, don't keep throwing good time after bad. I, yeah. Finite commodity. You and I have talked about oh. time is a very limited resource. And again, you only have so many jumps mm-hmm. in your career that if you're going to keep investing more time in something, make sure it's something worthwhile that you're getting something mm-hmm. good out
0: of. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, you're learning new skills and you're feeling challenged because the majority of people in front Now there are definitely some amazing analysts that will be analysts for most of their lives and I got, we need them. Like God bless them. We need them. But there's a lot of us who get forward easily. So we need a continual challenge. And so I think, yeah, continuing up that ladder and knowing what that next bright step is and maybe asking some of your peers, hey, do you think I'd be good at this? Or what do you think what I'm good at? That was a challenge on the first F retreat from the speaker, Heather Monaghan And one of the fraud fighters works for a very well-known company who attended it. She did that exercise and she went out and asked some of her friends and family to like anonymously give her feedback. And she'd been in the same role for seven years at that point and done amazing. And she put herself out there and and kind of took a risk talking with her boss and saying, hey, I'd like to do more. And I know there's not really another job right now, but just so you know, I'm I'm ready. And when a new position was created for a new set of problems, she got the role within a year. And because she was able to see herself through other people's eyes because sometimes
1: we can't see it ourselves. I think that's so important.
0: Well, you know that we could talk forever because truth be told, we've actually been on Zoom for four hours. (laughs) Uh, we've just only recorded the last hour-ish but I just really appreciate you taking time out of your your little bit of a break in between big exciting roles to share some of your experiences and be vulnerable and honest. And I have no doubt that people will find this very helpful. And I think that a lot of the things you said are are both actionable as well as things to be introspective about.
1: Well, thank you again for having me. It's always an
0: honor. Well, thank you for your time and your expertise and, and your friendship. Likewise.